This episode of The Subtle Forces was brought to you by the Divine Feminine, who has been a consistent sponsor of all life forms and their better potentials since before and in spite of time. The Divine Feminine continues its mission to combat all human-made catastrophe with special focus to empowering sufferers of guilt, shame, gender, and the full spectrum of patriarchal empire-related conditions. Due to the vested interests of our generous non-fiscal sponsor, the following story has been tailored to better suit their agenda. This story begins with waking up to find my brain caged in a mirror. The mirror reflected back my every pathetic antic ever committed. It was so clear to me that insecurity was to blame for every one of these incidents. Some incidents turned into straight-up habits. I spent almost the entirety of the early 2000s speaking in foreign accents, though I had lived my entire life in Wisconsin. (sighs) Toe curling. And then there was that time in 2013 or so when the dental assistant who was cleaning my teeth asked me about my career and life and I told her I was spending my days cutting paper into abstract artworks, living at home with my parents, and not making a regular stream of money. Whether or not she was judging me, I felt such shame And when I walked back into the waiting room, my mom asked me, Why were you talking so loud? I could hear everything you said all the way out here. When I feel ashamed, my voice just gets louder. I think it's because I feel watched by an audience at all times. If I project a loud, confident exterior, the audience won't detect the doubt I am feeling. But the audience never leaves me alone. They are always there for the show, my show, and I am in a contract that demands me to entertain them even in a room all by myself, even in my sleep. Suddenly, from the vantage point of the mirror cage, I could see my invented audience, and it was impossible not to constantly think about how dysfunctional this is. Then I tried recording myself just talking it out with my husband, Blaine. Do you feel like you have an audience that you are always performing to in your head? I don't. I don't feel like I have an audience that I am always performing to. In fact, I kind of feel better when I am more certain that I am not in front of an audience of any kind. There's a there's a way in which I can kind of relax a little bit extra 
just knowing that my brain doesn't have to think about someone else. And I always relish the times where I don't actually have to be aware of other people just for a while. It just made me feel even more alone. <laughs> a break from podcasting was very necessary. I missed conversations so lush I couldn't use everything. You and I have a, a, a mutual friend, and I'll bet you know who I'm talking about. Oh, yes. Who just loves to be contrarian all the time. Whatever the establishment says has to, by definition, be wrong. He often shares YouTube videos of the experts that he's found. And they're always self-educated crackpots. Every one of them. And this is the world he lives in. And since you know who I'm talking about, you, you can verify this. He's a very intelligent person otherwise. Yeah. When he started kind of sharing some anti-women, pro-men's rights mm, yeah. rhetoric, I didn't even take him seriously. Even if he is subscribing to those ideas, if he truly believed those ideas in his deepest chamber of his heart, he would not be so friendly and collaborative with me. He would probably ignore what I had to say, discount it, not even want to associate with someone like me who's a feral woman. <laughs> you have a little bit of an androgynous quality, though, yeah. that I bet softened uh, the offense. Yeah, yeah. But that's exactly what they don't like because they like the gender hierarchy. They like womenly women. Whereas like, I don't mind being a bit of a guy sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. but yeah, I don't know. Maybe that is where he related to me was uh, through my hidden boy. Yeah, that's probably yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he's interesting. I remember one time he oh, had a situation he's... and he was doing like a scientific test where he was like, he asked for a tarot reading and then I gave him a tarot reading and he said, I'm getting two other tarot readings and I'm comparing all three tarot <laughs> readings to see if they have a consistent message. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of reasons to love that guy. He's just oh, he's yeah. very, he's so creative. He's so smart. I just enjoy the hell out of him. Oh, yeah. But he's, in ways, he's a monster. So if she hit the fan in the United States and suddenly there was violence and civil war, I don't know if I would want to deal with him. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But then again... You know, if there was a whole bunch of Nazis out looking for people like me, and I, and I don't think of myself as the sort of person who would be a hero in a war situation, I think I would do whatever it would take to probably stay alive. Right. It would not be virtuous all the time. Right. But, like, I think if it came down to the situation where I was, like, on the run, people were trying to kill crazy artists like me mm -hmm. and uh the scrouse 
is still an artist, but it's okay because he's like Nazi. Now I'm just saying yeah, his name. Yeah, he's making he's making propaganda posters, so he's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So he's drinking the Kool-Aid. If it came down to like I knew the Nazis knew where I was and they were gonna like get me, I would go knock 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 scrass. <laughs> would you? You don't think he'd turn you in? During that break from podcasting, Peter the very friend I had recently been yakking with sent me this email. Anja, I felt compelled to share this with you since you're not on Facebook. The Scrouse just posted this. Team Cape Dweller, I hereby formally apologize for fighting on the side of the patriarchy. A name I have issues with. It tends to lean heavy-handed on men and doesn't go far enough. I prefer the term empire. I thought I was right and doing good for God's kingdom. It turns out that all my beliefs were inculcated lies. Sorry for any inconvenience. Also, Earlier this morning, he revealed his real name is Andy and apologized for creating distance with the whole name thing. So there you go. After reading the email, I thought to myself, hey, I've always thought the Scrouse, or Andy if he really prefers it now, as someone who has an internal audience that consistently demands him to be on. Has he changed? Is he more present? Is he ready to talk about all of his empire epiphany? I am the Scrouse. adopted a name that was given to me by my shipmates in the Navy, which was as close as I could get to a tribe. I made up a rule when I was at 10 that I needed a new name and I couldn't make it up myself. I had to be given it by my tribe. And of course I had no tribe until I joined the Navy. And then I still didn't have one. No, there was a brief time when I had a tribe, 2008. It was a Bible study that met in my apartment in the back of a church. And it was a Bible study from a different church. <laughs> Eventually, we all left the church and everybody went their separate ways and the thing fell apart and I was all alone again. Even if you wanted a tribe, do you find yourself a little more comfortable without having one? That's a good question. I don't know. I think I might be. But that's probably due to a lot of trauma. So if I would heal the trauma, then I'd be less uncomfortable with other people. I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. Just I, so, and then that just turns into it's your fault. No, it's not my fault. It's your fault. And then that, it's over. I guess I'm only talking about romantic relationships. Let's talk about friends. 
Have you ever felt like you formed an audience in your head in place of actual friends? That's a good way to put it. I probably have thought that, but not that succinctly. Just like a vague gestalt of that thought. I think you're absolutely right. Who is in my audience? I would say cartoonists and authors that I love. Yeah. I'm always trying to make the band of cartoonists and authors that I love laugh. That's when I know I've succeeded. Because sometimes I say the most hilarious things and I don't get anything from the people that are actually around me. So I just go back and consult Jack Kirby and Milt Caniff. Hey, buddy, what do you think? I always have thought of you as a nonstop performance art piece. What do you think of my observation? I am flattered by that observation, and I wish it could be that way. I feel like that's just an interpretation of watching a nut job. Yeah, at the time I built a model of the Millennium Falcon out of cardboard and dental floss and took it on the bus with me. It was as big as I was. I mean, it's, it's not like it's a matchbox size. <laughs> the bus is a frequent reoccurring audience that I have performed to as well. That's actually a good way to put it, too. I, I never thought of these things, but you're right. They're captive and they're relatively large. You know, they're at least as large as a poetry reading. That's like entry level audience, you know. Many times I've been... I've been just regular crying. And when I get on the bus, I think, hey, I might as well take it up a notch, get really weeping, and maybe someone will have fun trying to guess what I am crying so hard about. Or if I am living upstairs of someone, I might do some unusually rhythmic dancing in the living room just so that the neighbor will start to wonder about me. <laughs> I'm a terrible human being. You got to go on the circuit. You got to go on vaudeville with that. <laughs> or at least do stand-up. So I will hope to up the antics game now that you, I feel like I'm being challenged. If your life was a magazine and there were two photos, before and after, could you take a little time describing what is in either photograph? Uh, we can use famous paintings. So the first photograph would probably be the... Picasso's blue guitarist, sad old man looking at his dirty feet, barely playing the guitar because nobody taught him how. The old guitarist depicts an elderly musician, a blind, haggard man with a big rip in his shirt who is weakly hunched over his guitar. Embodies everything angsty and bohemian, and I had a poster of it in my teenaged bedroom. The second painting would be more like, I dreamt of the number five in red. Are you familiar with this painting? I saw the figure five in gold by Charles de Muth. The poet William Carlos Williams was a friend of Charles de Muth. One night, Williams saw a fire engine pass him by, sounding gong clangs and siren howls as it receded in the night. He was so struck by the sight that he took paper and pencil out of his pocket and wrote a poem, standing there on the sidewalk. Two lines of the poem, I saw the figure five in gold, were taken by DeMuth for his painting's title. The upper right corner of the painting has an arc, implying the fragment of a large number five, repeated three times in progressively smaller, complete number fives, 
to create an impression of the fire engine moving away from the viewer. But the painting isn't going anywhere when you're standing there. So if you're looking at it, you just go, whoa. Because of its association with dreams and its association with capturing movement and not just the image, but the feeling of the moment, right? Which is a fire truck going by, it's noisy, it's uh, chaotic, it's disruptive, it's red. And it, it was based on a dream, so the painting was. Like, did you ever see that Warner Brothers cartoon where there's a cat and it just walks in a straight line and there's a guy trying to save the cat because he's on a construction site and every time the cat steps off the edge of a steel girder, another one is there. <laughs> He swings around and he goes to a building and just keeps walking straight, totally unperturbed. And Mr. Magoo is the same way. He's blind. He doesn't know where he's going, but everything lines up for him. I want to surf that. I think that's the way to be. That's true. I am alive and I'm doing almost nothing to make that happen. <laughs> what are the questions you're asking right now? Let me think. Uh, the big question is right now, why and who did this to us? <laughs> I had this big revelation last week and it involved, well, I'll just, I'll just tell the whole story and dive right in. journey, otherwise known as psychedelics. And there was a doctor and a shaman. I did four of them in two days. Uh, we started with ecstasy and the doctor was there and he's actually a psychiatrist and he was asking me questions and I'm on MDMA and I'm like just revealing the most secretive things that I've never told anybody just offhandedly. You know, and I wasn't actually, I thought I wasn't feeling it. In fact, the whole time I didn't really feel much of anything, but all these intimate things. And then we come in, we do the toad, which is the five MEO DMT. And it, it knocks you out and transports you to another world. Except not me. I just, everything got crazy and warped and I fell in love with the shaman and then I like closed my eyes and then it was over. No other worlds, it was kind of boring. And the next day we did psilocybin and psilocybin was so infuriating because nothing happened. I'm bored and my back hurts and I'm getting irritated and I'm mad and I'm feeling depressed because of what's going on, what's wrong? And I finally get up and I tell them, hey, nothing's happening. And they didn't believe me. <laughs> so they're like, come on, it can't be. We gave you a very large dose. Try this rape. <laughs> they blow the hot sauce up my nose. And uh, I went back to, to try it again. And 
nothing happened. And that morning before the psilocybin, I was frantically trying to think how I could confess my love to the shaman, including proposing to her. And I was looking on my phone for jobs I could find in Salt Lake City. It was insane. And at one point, I'm like, wait a minute. This isn't going to pan out the way I'm fantasizing. I, I have to stop. This is nuts. So I didn't, I played it cool. I didn't say a word to her. I asked her about her tattoo. Anyway, mine's on psilocybin. doesn't work. I had this urging that I was supposed to ask her to touch me, which maybe sounds weird. Does that sound weird? Yes. This whole thing sounds kind of weird, actually. Anja, would you touch me? You're supposed to touch me. Anyway, and on top of being in love with her, it was doubly weird. So I'm like, I'm not doing that. And I'm arguing with myself. And finally, I did. And she's so professional and loving and eager to help people. She's like, thank you for asking for what you need. And she starts touching me shamanistically. You know, do you have pain? Yes, my lower back. She touches my lower back. And she's like, what do you feel? I'm like, crap, I hate this question. I, my body connection was zero up until that day. And maybe it still is. What do you feel? I said, I want to say sadness, but I don't feel anything. I'm totally numb. And she introduced me to my body, like touching my head and my neck and my arms and my knees and my feet and saying things like, hello, feet, <laughs> like, hello, knees. Thank you for supporting me. And I'm like, hello, knees. <laughs> I'm like right there with her. And then how did that lead to me weeping? Somehow, I told the story about King David. I wanted to be just like David because I was weak and I always wanted to be strong. I told him about the story. One of my buddies down the street tried to beat me up. I didn't do anything. I didn't want to fight. And then I got yelled at my, from my mom. At the, on top of that, not only was I not rescued, but I got yelled at. What a miserable life. But it ended up with the story of David and Bathsheba. Do you know this story? Oh, this is a good one. So King David was the mightiest mortal on earth. He did whatever God wanted and he slaughtered all the guys he wanted because God was with him and he could do anything. And so he gets made king. And one day, Bathsheba, the wife of his general, so his neighbor, general is out in the field and she knows what time David is up on the roof. So she goes up on her roof and takes a bath. And David sees this and is smitten and desirous. And they both know what they're doing. They both know what's going on, right? You're not fooling David by suddenly appearing naked in a bath when he happens to be out there. Everybody knows what's going on. They have a moment of ecstasy. And David is like, all right, that's great. I got away with it. Boom, she's pregnant. Bathsheba's pregnant. David's like, I, I got to cover this up. Calls his general home and he says, hey, general, now that you're home, why don't, you, why don't you go and sleep with your wife and have a good time? And he's like, no, King David, I can't. The lads are still sleeping out in the dirt. They'd lose respect for me. So I'm going to sleep in the dirt too. And David's like, crap, I'm going to kill him. So he arranges for his best general to be caught alone amidst the enemy. And of course, he's dead. And David's like, I made it. I lived. I got out of that one. A prophet comes from out of town and says to David, let me tell you a story. There's a guy who has thousands of sheep. He's so rich, he has all the sheep on all the surrounding hillside, except one. But he wants that sheep so bad, he went to the owner of that sheep and killed him so that he could take it for himself. And David's furious. He jumps out of his throne. And he says, well, then we're going to kill him. And the prophet goes, you are the man. And David knows he's caught and he falls down on the ground, weeping for his situation and bawling and ashes on his head. And there's no help. There's nobody that's going to come for him. There's nothing. 
He has to sit with that guilt. Later, of course, he marries Bathsheba. The child she bears is King Solomon, the wisest man on earth. So amidst my weeping and bawling, I realize David's sin wasn't being with Bathsheba. It was the shame. The shame was the sin, and it drove him to murder. And out of their ecstasy came wisdom, right? The wisest man in the world. And I'm bawling and like, they were just enjoying their bodies. You know, I grew up a fundamentalist, so I never even considered that it would be even rational to just enjoy somebody's body. You know, you're both married. I mean, like, what does it mean when a king's married and he has 300 wives? It doesn't mean a whole lot, I guess, really. I mean, when you think about it, the doctor says, hey, I have a song for you. And he plays Leonard Cohen's song. You know the song? Hallelujah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it is. And I hated that song always because that verse where it's the bondage in, in the sexual context involved. And then David singing hallelujah over sex, not God. I'm like, that can't be right. I'm reading a verse two from the song of hallelujah. Your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty and the moonlight overthrew ya. She tied you to a kitchen chair. She broke your throne. She cut your hair. And from your lips, she drew the hallelujah. It just increased my weeping because it was so right. It was perfect. And on top of it being perfect, their moment of ecstasy, it goes further because. It talks about how she defeated the empire through this act. She smashed his throne and broke his crown or something like that. But I think Leonard Cohen worded it a little bit better. Revolutionary to me. And meanwhile, the shaman has her head on my shoulder and she's holding me and I'm stroking her arm. And it's affection that I typically only reserved for romantic relationships. But this is something different, you know? It was deeper and better. It was like that uh, agape stuff. It was agape stuff. Yeah. Which, guess what? I never saw in a church ever, <laughs> you know? And then I plunged into Adam and Eve. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was really the knowledge of the rules that are placed upon us. And once they see that it's a sham, they're kicked out of the garden. I don't know what a theologian would say. They'd probably say I'm making that up. You know, I'm reading things into it, but. It doesn't matter. It changed my entire perspective of everything. You mentioned the term empire. What is that in your life? That is when I started looking into the occult, the idea of empire came up because of Philip K. Dick. He had a vision in the 70s that he was simultaneously existing in the Roman Empire and 70s California. And he wrote thousands of pages about this and what that meant. And the most popular quote from all that is when he said, the empire never ended. And it really never did. The Roman Empire never ended. Constantine turned it into the Holy Roman Empire and the Vatican. And they conquered the world from there. And now it's mutated again. Now it's the technocrats and the, all the scumbags with money. And it's us. It's us too. The things that we believe that we enforce. The empire isn't just a hierarchical structure of power. It's lateral as well. Like we enforce it on each other. It's just horrible. What are some of the ideas we enforce on each other? Well, 
our ideas of sexuality, the ownership of somebody, you know, I own my wife or my wife owns me and that kind of business. I think it's most easily seen in the things that people shout about in political arguments. They're trying to enforce a lateral control, you know, and anything that controls us, really, all the rules that are unnecessary. Was this insight of the empire granted to you through long-term realization or just last week's drug-induced epiphany? It was an epiphany that made all the ideas, not, I don't know, make sense, but took them further. So the doctor was calling it the patriarchy. You know, because of the patriarchy, we do this. Because of the patriarchy, we do that, right? So maybe you can understand it better that way by calling it the patriarchy. And I realized, oh, I've been fighting for the patriarchy all my life, especially since I joined Facebook. Because when I was on Facebook, I'm like, I'm going to get in fights on Facebook because I want to be strong. I want to be a fighter. And it didn't, it never, it just, I think it just worked against me. I was fighting myself, but yeah, the patriarchy. At least if we were doing it by snail mail, you'd have a couple days at least to like cool off. Yeah, social media has brought the worst out of me. Definitely. Yeah. But I think if, I, if it hadn't brought the worst out of me, I don't know if I would have had the revelation the same way. You know? Okay, so I fell in love with the shaman, right? But, but at first it's this weird like infatuation where I wanted to marry me. And then by the time we're embracing or cuddling or whatever we were doing, it, was, it had been purified into something that it should be, you know, between people. And I realized these are the people I've been fighting. There was one witch once that started fighting with me on Facebook because I said witches were wimps. I was just kidding around, but, <laughs> you know, witches are wimps, but hey, I'm a wizard. Like, like there's any difference, right? No, that was the only time I know that somebody was disturbed by me being me. But yeah, I can't, there's a lot of things in particularly leftist politics that I, I can't deal with or, uh, you know, all the movements actually, I think have gone sour. Uh, feminism in particular, but it, you know, the movements that I loved and have supported too, I think are going sour as well. In fact, I know they are. All movements go sour unless they're realized, right? Like the American Revolution became America and then the revolution was over. Imagine if it was never over. Imagine if we were still fighting it and talking about it in newspapers and media. It's true. We don't have British accents. But usually, the energy that creates these conflicts just finds new forms. No matter where you are politically, I think it's still pretty obvious we're still fighting the Civil War. Oh, you think so? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much heat on the topic of Black Lives Matter that... That in itself is reminiscent of civil war, whether or not you agree or disagree with the movement. You know what I mean? Sure. It's just unfinished business that keeps recycling itself. It's the empire. Yeah. See, there you go. That's a good example of the empire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's a great example of the empire. Gerrymandering, right? Another one is making psychedelics illegal. All the hippies are like, we're not going to fight your war. And Nixon's like, what? Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> no more psychedelics. I got a hold of some psilocybin a few months earlier, and it was pretty great. I was laughing and crying and saying things like, I want everybody to know. And finally, finally, because I was happy. 
finally, for the first time. I was saying things like, I remember. I don't know what I was remembering, but I remembered. I think I was remembering being happy or being human or did I record it? No, it's like a six hour experience. I didn't record it. I wrote down the highlights. Like, I don't need to judge. Not don't judge, but I don't need to. <clears throat> it's not necessary. Anything like the weather or other people's actions, it led to the later epiphany from last week, which now when I talk about it, I realize it doesn't make any sense. It made so much sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. It's too bad. It was a good one. But it still, it changed my life. Now, I'm working with what they call an integration therapist. And these are people who help you integrate your psychedelic experience. Well, one thing I realized is there's this tied to David and Bathsheba enjoying each other's bodies in a moment of passion and ecstasy. The first time I saw a naked woman was in the Playboy centerfold that, that my neighbor friend, who was in middle school, he was older than me, found in my dad's nightstand. We're mesmerized. It's the greatest thing we've ever seen. The woman in the picture loved being the woman in the picture, right? She was just like Bathsheba. She loved being there. She knew what was going on and she wanted it. And there we were accepting it and loving it and wanting it. And it was this beautiful moment of discovering sexuality. And, but no, no, it had to be shameful. And I was ashamed. And being ashamed of that all my life has pushed me out of my body and out of my feelings, right? Heart and body, I, I don't experience them. The shaman goes, did that shame bring you closer to God? And I couldn't answer it. I couldn't answer it because I knew the answer was yes, but all my life, no, no, I knew the answer was no, but all my life I had been saying, yes, I'm closer to God, but I was not. The shame, the shame screwed up my whole life. And I, I didn't even realize it during the sessions, during the psychedelic sessions. I thought it was just about love, right? Because I had put love on a shelf and threw darts at it because love is fake. Love is stupid. No, love's not real. But there's one love that can get into my heart and that's uh, the desiring a beautiful woman. So the medicine knows exactly what it's doing. Didn't show me any effects, but I, the first minute I fall in love with, with the shaman and then that love evolved into something else and I realized love is real. But the main lesson wasn't that. That's only what I could figure out. The therapist pulled out the shame. And shame's a killer. It reminds me of an experiment you did a couple years ago when you had multiple people give you a tarot reading. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. I remember the card we pulled, too. The love card. I remember you immediately responded, nope, that's impossible. <laughs> you see, you see, but that's me, you know, that is me. But I had no idea because to me, love was always weak, right? Weak as Jesus, at least, or as weak as a girl. You know, you don't want to be a girl, right? Oh, you throw like a girl. Everything is like girls. If you're a girl and you're a boy, that's the worst. And yeah, so that is me, but I've always tried to push it away. Wow, that's amazing. So the tarot is pretty accurate, isn't it? Only if you're open to it, but you were closed. I was, and that's another thing. The, the therapist is like, you know, he gave you a lot of medicine. I would have been high all day on the amount of MDMA that he gave you. And she says, I think the medicine, by doing nothing, 
is showing you that you are closed. You won't let anything in and you won't let anything out. And I have to say that that's probably true. In fact, I know it's true. That's me. I've been guarded all my life. So now I'm, the integration part of this experience is to become unguarded and more open. What are some of the things you're going to start doing? To be open up? First thing I did it, when I arrived in Salt Lake City was go to a bookstore. Every new city I go to, I look up used books and I go there. And I stumbled across this book that I hated as a child. It was called Raggedy Andy because I thought it was a personal mockery to me. And I'm like, I hate you, Raggedy Andy, all my life. I was like, and I see this book and I'm like, well, maybe I should at least see what it's about. After the sessions, I made a point to go and buy that book and make peace with Raggedy Andy, right? Yes, my original mother-given name was Andrew William, which means strong man, believe it or not. Wait, Andy means strong man? You killed off the strong man trying to be a strong man. I, which is another thing I thought was a mockery, personal mockery. You know, because I'm so skinny, I'm like, uh, two pounds. Uh. Oh, man, it's terrible. I get the book. And um, I can't read it on the way home because I'm crying so much because I, I'm, I was so emotional. For days after that, I would just think about things that happened or people I knew or look at the sunset. At one point, I woke up under a 5-MEO and they were dancing in the room and the shaman has this bright smile and she looks at me and says, we're dancing for you. And the song was, here comes the sun. We're dancing for you. Here comes the sun. It's so such a minor thing, but that... that uh, that's and like an electrode in my heart, you know? Finally, the long, dark night of my soul, which started in grade school, is over. The dawn is coming. So I get back, and I'm just sitting around, and I just get on Facebook, and I tell the world, hey, if you want, you don't have to call me the Scrouse. You can call me by my birth name. And then, like, by the end of the day, I had really regretted it. It was an act of trying to be open. Because I realized hating the name Andy was self-directed hatred. <clears throat> I was hating myself. So that was my first step. I don't really know what else to do, you know? How do you change yourself? Stop trying to change yourself. Oh! Is that it? If you are like me or the Scrouse, this means no longer adopting an effect or developing an intentional mystique to set oneself apart from others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. So another thing I'm going to try doing is just being relaxed around people, just talking to people without making it happen. So maybe just approaching people and letting the moment exist without me having to do anything, which interestingly under psilocybin, I was just sit on the edge of the bed and just talk whatever came into my head and not talk if I didn't want to. I was totally at peace doing that. But you know, it's hard to do any of that when everybody's like hiding out. <laughs> I don't know, what do you think? How do you feel about performance and performing and always being on? When I didn't have enough playmates, I invented an audience. So even when I am lonely, I've never felt invisible or unheard. Who's in my audience has changed over the years. 
God watched to collect the moral sum total. Angels watched as lifeguards, rescuers. Ancestors watched so they could live again through my life. Santa listened in to see what to order present-wise. Parents oversaw to correct as needed. Teachers scanned for signs of my comprehension. Kids took inventory to decide what to make fun of next. Women at the mall crouched to receive a better view of my cuteness. Parishioners waited for signs of my proper indoctrination. Conscience was always ready with the pangs of guilt and grins of pride. My reflection copied me with perfect symmetry before leaving the frame just to wait for my return. Most adults seemed to enjoy a show, so it was easy to ham it up. When the adults weren't there, it was time to rehearse some fresh quips for my tester audience consisting of God, angels, ancestors, Santa, the Tooth Fairy, the Easter Bunny, and all four beetles who looked directly at me without blinking at all times from their poster on my wall. Once irrefutable proof arrived that Santa was bunk, it wasn't a big deal. I was still special. I was still a great genius whose every unbaked thought was instantly worthy of dramatic delivery. Adults at parties would occasionally tell me, You know, you're going to be famous when you grow up. I can just tell. In adulthood, I embraced ideas that served this specialness theory. If I had success, it was because I deserved it. I had manifested my reality. I had attracted opportunity by my simply wanting it because I was good. So good. I had an ethereal audience that constantly watched me and would call in these gifts for me. But this holy audience also called in a chronic illness with no known cure. Why would that be? What was the reason? Higher level success could never be built up to if I was constantly siphoning my time away to tend to my extra physical needs. And what if things got worse? Would it still be God's plan? What if I died? Don't even mention death, lest you attract it. I've been told that the law of attraction doesn't know the difference between yes and no. It just assumes whatever you are saying is what you want, so you should avoid talking about negative things. Try to form all sentences stating only what it is that you want. If you say you want a garden salad but do not want the turkey burger, the universe won't understand the term do not, and will send you both a garden salad and a turkey burger. If I was receiving anything I didn't want, I was to be blamed for not setting my requests right. 
it was probably a deeper metaphysical problem. Many hippie types have suggested that I have tons of food sensitivities that can only be reversed by verbally working through old family conflicts. If that is the prescription for food sensitivities, then what is the prescription for Down syndrome? Blindness? COVID-19? Is every illness, fire, layoff, rape, systemic racism incident the victim's fault? Contrary to many magical thinking people, I don't think so. This means that a whole lot of things can and do happen that are out of my control. How does that change who I think is listening in my ever-present audience? Speaking of audiences, people who prefer to think their successes and good health are rewarded to them because they are worthy might be tuning away from this particular podcast episode. Who is still with me when I am in a room all alone? I have no idea if it is only me or spirits too. Either way, perhaps it is most ethically responsible to take a more atheist standpoint, though I feel the touch of spirits. An atheist would think I am the only one whose judgment of my private thoughts and actions matter. If I truly am the only one, then I am the only one who can try to do things right as often as I can by listening to my feelings and challenging my fears. This way, I know I am special, not because of what the divine has awarded me individually, but because I can be fully myself, unrestricted, both alone and with others, even in difficult moments. And if times are difficult, it wasn't because I was bad or wrong. Unless, of course, I was, and I know it. That's an awful feeling, the worst, but one worth knowing in order to go about atonement and to find new ways of being. If ghosts and the Holy Spirit are in this room with me listening in on the wheel of my thoughts, feeling the warmth of life emanating out from my curls and watching me listlessly squeeze a patch of cellulite on my thigh... All they can do is witness. Even when I sense spirits, I can't hear them speak for a reason. This is my life to live. They do not control me. I have always been encouraged to ask the permission of some other responsible adult or deity. But if I do not actually grant myself permission... I will remain in trouble with my own soul forever. God, that is the best thing I've ever heard. Shaman said that to me. She said, you don't have to earn love. If you don't love yourself, nobody else can. These are some things she said to me, and these sound like cliches, right? We've heard all this before, but they're used over and over because they're true. Exactly. And we got to continue to remind ourselves of these, particularly in argument with 
other things, like you just said, like the law of attraction where the ancestors have ordained that you're worthy. There's so much. Were you ever a Christian? I was a fundamentalist, and that's pretty strict because, you know, the more you behave, the closer you are to God, right? And I wanted to be really close to God so I could slaughter my enemies, right? In the end of a life of Christianity, you become a victim. It just leads to victimhood. You know, well, that's what God wants. Or maybe I'll get out of bed, Lord willing. So going back to David and Bathsheba, the sin there was believing the shame. That was the sin. Nothing else. Well, the murder was bad, you know, but it, was, it came about because he believed the shame. Sexual enjoyment and passion is a shame and it should never be done. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and these people, they don't even, they don't even know what they're talking about, you know? They just, they don't look very deeply into things. Maybe they haven't had enough psychedelics. Maybe that's the answer. I highly recommend it. And now, a brief word from Regis Ajna, President of the Board of Directors here at the Subtle Forces. Ajna, here you go. Esteemed listeners, it is my duty to assure you that our fine podcast does not condone or decry the use of psychedelics. Obviously, they are illegal in most jurisdictions and therefore unregulated and possibly contaminated with uh, paint chips and dog blood. Some of you may be tempted to go mushroom hunting yourself, but this still presents danger. For every edible fungi, there exists an identical-looking poisonous fungi, and without the oversight of a qualified mycologist, you could die. If hiring a self-described shaman, healer, or energy worker, please be warned beforehand that you could just end up getting locked away in the dungeon of a New Age cult, if not just a regular prison. How's it going, Anja fans? This is a Scrouse addendum that Anja has agreed to uh, addend, amend, append. And I'm here just to say thank you for listening. And uh, I apologize if I frightened anybody, you know, because uh, I have strong opinions. And lately, uh, as you heard, I've learned that most of those opinions came from defending what you call the patriarchy, what I prefer to call empire. 
I wanted to finish the story about falling in love because I'm a 50-year-old uh, lad who fell in love and it's all I can talk about. When I see an attractive woman, I ignore her, which of course is a recipe for loneliness. But it began with the effects of 5-MeO-DMT, which is toad venom. I said I didn't have any effects, but I did have a very profound effect in a, a brief moment of this typical psychedelia. I, we were administering the medicine, and it, you vaporize it. You heat it up into a vapor and inhale it. The shaman stood next to me and calmly and soothingly taught me how to inhale. And then as I actually inhaled, when she lit it off, she was coaching me. Good, good. A little more, a little more. So I finished inhaling the venom, and she starts singing. But I don't really notice that because all I can see is her face. And it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. I just can't stop staring at it. She's radiant. And the joy and love and acceptance flowing out of her eyes and her gentle smile and the exotic tattoo in white that comes up her chin to her lip and her bright eyes and her every... I, I don't want to go into it. I'm sorry I went in too far, but I, I don't want to bore you. It was just the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And... I couldn't stop looking at her. She finally had to say, okay, lay down. And so I did. I laid down. But I, the room is warping and shifting and through me and around me. And I'm loving it. And Doc comes up and he says, close your eyes. Let go. And his voice is far away and like right in front of me. And so I did. And I found myself in a psychedelic room. <sighs> Bright colors sacred geometry on all the walls, and her singing had turned into a choir of a thousand instruments, all playing at once, in harmony, at full throttle. Like, really going for broken. It's the most amazing piece of music I've ever heard in my life. But I'm looking at the room, and it shifts when I turn my eyes, and I think, oh, it's not real. And boom, it's gone. Boom. So, that's the beginning. That's how I fell in love. You heard the hijinks of the next morning. And the next day when she left, she knelt beside the bed. I was still going through the process. And she said goodbye. And she looks in my eyes and says, I love you. Oh, I forgot to tell you, I professed my love to her too. I told her I love you. But it was so hard to get out. I almost couldn't do it. And so I said, I love you. And then immediately said, why is it so hard to say that? But I had professed my love. And Still, I mean, this is extremely weird, probably sounding to you, listener, but she accepted it all and it was perfectly normal. Of course, it's not her first rodeo and I've come to find out later. I'm not the first guy to fall in love with her. <laughs> Thank God. Uh, well, no, I don't know. I mean, I, <clears throat> anyway, this look in her eyes. Her joy hasn't disappeared, but now it's more determined and steely and daring me to contradict that she loves me. She just wants me to know. She's so earnest. And I couldn't say anything. I didn't have anything. I, I wanted to hold her, but I, my arm was out, but it just hung there. And I said goodbye. I didn't even say goodbye. I said, see, so long. It was so, I feel like I did everything wrong. But, uh, anyway, I'm grateful that she was in my life. Say
the song Lenten Rose by the exquisite Anna Raff. Thank you, Anna. And thank you to Uncle John for the tip. Thank you to the Scrouse for coming and talking about all sorts of tender, vulnerable stuff. Wow. I love you, my friend. Thank you to Peter Donald's for the updates and candid talk. Thank you to my husband Blaine for chatting with me for an hour's recording even though we didn't use it. To your relief. And thank you to my brother Anton, who not only created the wordless soundscape, but who also rescued me after I lost an entire day's worth of edits. Anton sat down on Sunday and spent an hour on Zoom teaching me how to use a different editing program. And because of it, we have an episode today. He is such a nice brother. If you enjoyed this podcast, share and follow if you care to. Keep looking deeper. Keep feeling for all the subtle forces. And remember to use both your feelers and your logic. Au revoir.